This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. We all know that human development impacts nature and that the most developed of human spaces, cities, without any nature in them, negatively impact humans. Since the very beginning of the fields of landscape architecture and public planning, there have been designers, builders, thinkers, and dreamers who've worked to interweave nature, its sense of green, of refuge, of peace, into these otherwise very inorganic areas for the benefit of both the ecological world and the benefit of humans. Think of Frederick Law Olmsted's work in New York's Central Park and many, many other urban parks across the country at the turn of the 19th century. To varying degrees of success, generations of landscape architects since Olmsted have carried this torch. One of our generation's leading lights in this work of bringing nature home to our urban areas is Mia Lair. Mia is the founding principal of the Los Angeles-based Mia Lair and Associates, whose garden design work, particularly in urban environments, embodies her belief in the power of landscape and landscape architecture to enhance the livability of a city and to heal the environment. Born and raised in El Salvador, the daughter of European immigrant parents who cultivated an awe and respect for the natural world, Mia describes her early life as a paradise of rainforests, volcanoes, parakeets, and weekend outings to engage with the world around her. Her father founded a land trust-like organization which continues in El Salvador today. Mia traveled to the United States for her university education, starting at Tufts University and ultimately earning her master's in landscape architecture from the Graduate School of Design at Harvard University after encountering some of Frederick Law Olmsted's working drawings for the design of Central Park, which were Mia's first introduction to the existence of such a career. Due to civil war in El Salvador in the mid-1970s, Mia was not easily able to return to her country, and eventually she met her husband, also completing his training at Harvard, and the two moved to his hometown of Los Angeles, California, to work in design firms there. After 10 years of designing beautiful residential gardens, learning her new climate and multicultural city, Mia consciously began the journey toward what she is now known for, giving back and bringing communities together as she creates ecologically important, large public nature spaces of beauty, utility, and integrity. Her award-winning work includes the Nature Gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County in the heart of downtown L.A. She joins us today to talk more about her belief in and approach to this work. Welcome, Mia. Well, thank you very much. Good morning. So let's start with you describing your transition from residential design work into the public design work you're really well known for now. I early on learned that Many of my garden clients would become um, important voices in in the environmental world. Some of the nonprofits in Los Angeles, for example, like Friends of the LA River or Tree People or Heal the Bay, but also ones that my clients engaged in, whether it was on the boards of directors or as donors. Mm -hmm. What happened was that I started feeling um, that 
as a Latina with training in, a, in an important profession that I needed to start in basically engaging with the community and um, if nothing else, educating, but educating through design and through sharing of ideas, I did become friendly and um, started doing some work with tree people. And um, I became a board member and worked on a series of efforts associated with watershed planning for the county of Los Angeles, meaning I was on the board as an advocate but participated in a series of very interesting workshops uh, 20 years ago that led to major changes in how we, how the county and others and got together to approach water in a more um, sort of holistic watershed sort of approach. And so over that like 10-year period 20 years ago, there were these these efforts over like just you know working through what could the river be for us. So for those of us who aren't familiar, describe the L.A. River, because it's not what most of us think of as a river. So the L.A. River um, is is a concrete channel that starts at Sepulveda Dam and ends up down in Long Beach. And it's a concrete channel that is anywhere from 250 to 450 feet wide. Um, and it was channelized because the Army Corps of Engineers in the 19, late 1930s realized that there had been several floods, and they had to protect. That's their responsibility is to protect um, the people that from a big events. Um, in this case, it's flooding. So they they constrained the river so that the water could move quickly as it came down and into the bay. Mm-hmm. But in as the city grew, many of the uh, uh, treatment plants, sewer sewer treatment plants, were located near the river in that part of the water that goes into the, into the into the channel that then gets flows down to. The ocean. So, what it became, this concrete uh, channel became a barrier between east and west parts of the of the city. It became a barrier socially, economically, culturally. It really was a gash. Mm -hmm. And for what the Army Corps was trying to do, it solved many problems elegantly. For from an environmental perspective and a social cultural perspective, it was an issue. Yeah. The beauty of the the river uh, story is that in there were several areas of the river where the water table, meaning the water was so high on the surface that the concrete wouldn't stick. So there are miles of it that do have vegetation where there is now kayaking, and where things are thriving. You know, bird. Birds and wildlife are thriving, and uh, the community is really engaging in a meaningful way. But the other piece that I also was involved with, besides tree people <clears throat> and folar cleanups, was um, in school. The schools, my children's schools, we did a, a, a greening of the school and a friends of uh, nonprofit. 
then we worked with um, the Conservation Corps to plant about 20 blocks of our neighborhood with my husband's team and my team. So really what we saw for ourselves in the 80s is an engagement with community at different levels that just gave me a tremendous satisfaction that balanced my my viewpoint of creating these gardens for people who, you know, were incredibly privileged uh, with life on the ground, uh, people which that weren't necessarily as privileged, or certainly with environments in the city like the LA River that really needed sort of healing and the support of professionals who happened to have the kind of training that we had. You you came to to be working on these things through sort of like many different avenues through engagement with your children, with your community, with your professional life. You saw this disconnect or or possible point of potential connection between the privileged people and and gardens and the um, park poor neighborhoods. Talk about the beginnings of your work with the LA. County Natural History Museum's Nature Gardens. We worked uh, on the vision plan for the Baldwin Hills, which is the oil fields in the middle of Los Angeles, 1,400 acres. And uh, it's a, you know, a really significant uh, topographical sort of uh, piece in Los Angeles. The oil fields are there, and they are surrounded by largely African-American and Latino communities that have been impacted by air quality and water quality issues associated with the mining of these sites. So we did, you know, a year's work, uh, worth of sort of community work and envisioning about what would be the people, people's sort of dreams and aspirations for the site. And it then produced what is now the Baldwin Hills Conservancy, you know, uh, basically receives bond money and is slowly buying land and restoring the areas that they own. So that was seminal in terms of knowing how to work with community and realizing that one of the things you have to have when you're working on these kinds of projects is a certain amount of empathy and uh, that you have to basically respect and value people's opinions, uh, but you also have a responsibility to educate and help people understand their choices. The second project that was really important to us was the master plan for Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, the Department of Water and Power um, had had to uh, engage the communities in the 13 drinking water reservoirs in the city of Los Angeles, with a series of master plans to uh, understand how to um, appropriately engage um, access and community to the edges of these reservoirs, which had been traditionally very, you know, very um, inaccessible, but which, with some hard work from designers and design teams, 
acres of land or, or trails were able to be integrated. But in work, working with a very large, with a large and, and important agency, working with stakeholders and community groups, and working with people like the, um, the like the Audubon Society, or was was really important to us because we really learned, uh, you know, on on the ground what urban what eventually became a really important and seminal part of our work, which is urban ecology. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we got the brief from the Natural History Museum to compete for the project, the gardens. They had had as a board of directors a, um, a sort of a series of meetings uh, that had led them to uh, an understanding of their important role as an institution that needed, where as a natural history institution, being sort of a mothballed institution, a place with lots of wonderful collections in their basements or in their beautiful museum exhibit spaces were basically minimizing the, their opportunity to connect with the younger generations. Mm-hmm. And the as the Metro and the Expo line were coming forward and um, the USC students were also starting to uh, really connect with the city more, the realization that these acres of asphalt parking lots had had another pos- that there was another possibility for them. Yeah, and, amen. <laughs> and uh, and I think at the time, um, as as but you know because we had been thinking about urban ecology in a deep way, we would finished the natural history, we had worked on Baldwin Hills, we had worked on the uh, on Silver Lake, there was like we we really got what the potential was there. And working with the scientists, which I called my ologists meeting, <laughs> was so enlightening and so such a rich and wonderful experience. We all had to come to terms with the fact that we understand what the scientists are trying to do, and but at some point. We need to bring, you know, the general public through the gardens, and we need to have it be a, a, an experience that is um, sort of tangible and beautiful that allows them to sort of circumnavigate in a clear way and that where they could take lessons home. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Mia Layer is the founding principal of the L.A.-based Mia Layer & Associates, whose design work, particularly in Los Angeles, embodies her belief in the power of landscape. Her award-winning work includes the nature gardens at the L.A. County Natural History Museum in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. We'll be right back after the break. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Before the break, we began our conversation with Mia Lair, LA-based landscape architect, about the need for incorporating nature back into our urban spaces and about her work on the nature gardens at the LA County Natural History Museum. We'll start back on the process of that work. So describe, Mia, the beginnings of the design and layout of the nature gardens. Basically, we deployed a term that, you know, follows urban ecology, which is performative landscape. Yeah. Uh, when, when we started and we started developing some of the stories we wanted to tell, one of the stories coming out of the parking structure is the story about how plants arrived in California. Mm-hmm. So um, everything from, you know, as the Spaniards arrived and then, you know, travel started sort of growing and plants started arriving from Hawaii and, and eventually from Australia or China. And so we have a series of uh, gardens um, along the ramp that tell that story. And by the way, you arrive under a grove of these magnificent silk oak trees, which were the parakeets from uh, Central America that have been let loose from in, from in Los Angeles, travel from Malibu to the Natural History Museum. So they, they come home to me, which is really wonderful. Yeah. So the the notion that A we have to have a fence. So what's performative about that fence because the gardens have to be closed at night is uh, basically the 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 vines which yeah. also provide the most opportunities for certain kinds of uh, birds and butterflies and and other creatures. You go through that in you know that initial space and then you go and, and you see all uh, uh, this wall, which is a, a performative wall, a wall that actually has no grout, no concrete, because we want cre- the, any kind of creature that can climb through and up um, to actually be happy and thrive. And it's planted. It's a planter. And yeah. so what it does for the next layer of the garden, which is the river, uh, the riverine environment, that river sort of story, is that it provides some sound attenuation. So it's performing on many levels. One of the things that was important about the plant material choices, which was not all native, mm-hmm. instead it's basically habitat value. Obviously, uh, we only using plants that are sort of, uh, that use very little water, but the habitat value was what the scientists and us sat down with lists of plants and said, okay, which ones have the most habitat value? Everything from ground covers to vines to trees to shrubs, that's how we decided. We also have a pond, and the pond is meant to be the lake that feeds the river that, you know, basically, you know, ends up in an L.A. River structure. A million people come to the museum a year, uh, maybe a million one already, and uh, families of all ages uh, and um, school children especially come twice during their elementary school education, and I've had the experience of letting school children taste strawberries from the ground for the first time in their lives. The power of this place is about an appreciation for nature, an appreciation for the power of education and for leadership and environmental stewardship. And I think that the younger, the, the, the younger generation is, is blessed to have 
uh, the leadership of the Natural History Museum and the county uh, in general to really believe in these kinds of projects. In thinking about the sheer size of these very beautiful stone walls, which are such dominant features ecologically and aesthetically, I really found myself wondering how you balance your material choices against your equally strong desire to be sustainable. Importing so much stone comes with its own carbon footprint and environmental impact elsewhere. How do you weigh these choices? It's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a very good question. Um, and I, again, started out with the framework concept for the garden, basically the living fence, the living wall, mm-hmm. then the living water, which is the the, the river, and then um, you know the what we call the food thread um, on the other end, including um, the the hummingbird gardens and other areas. We needed to do that lift of the wall, the you know the four foot lift of the wall, mm-hmm. and we wanted it n- not only because because we wanted to plant larger shrubs and trees, and we were starting to get limited on the amount of space because we always had to think about allowing for groups of students to be able to sort of be with their teacher in one area while others are going by. So there was a lot of sort of practical aspects of how to get people around. And when the, the, the lifting of the wall was really important, so that's a decision we made. And how to lift it? You lift it by building concrete. That didn't seem to actually tell the right message. Mm-hmm. Um, do you build it by putting wood? It, it's a, you know, even if, let's say, it was recycled wood, um, it would, which we used in, which which we did use recycled wood in the in the vegetable, you know, food garden. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes a lot of maintenance over time, and it wouldn't have given us the height we needed um, as easily. So the the third was stone, and what kind of stone? And uh, so we started out by thinking of some. Don't locally harvest this stone, and because of the height we needed, um, and because of the sort of shape we needed, which is not too wide and not too, you know, stone that could be cut easily. In the long term, in in the sense that these projects and these gardens are hopefully around for you know a few generations, it, you know, I I think that, you know, thinking that stones got on the truck to come to to a downtown L.A. is, is, I think, justified. A really great answer and a process that uh, that anyone who gardens on any scale needs to think about because these walls are truly stunningly beautiful, but it is clear just based on um, the precision and consideration of your large-scale work that every choice is considered. I really want to get to a question of diversity. It's one of the themes that comes up throughout your work and to hear your story um, of growing up in El Salvador and your family's values and then making your way from the East Coast to the United States to a very big city on the West Coast. How do you approach making your public spaces inclusive and welcome to a diverse multicultural audience? 
thinking of um, authenticity to place is really important. Um, I think that uh, how my background comes to bear is part of my DNA. I think that beauty is a global, you know, uh, sort of uh, lens. If with a new, new generation of immigrants, you don't design the, the park space with picnic tables for four people. You design them for 20 people because they come as a, as a, a large extended family. And that's something that uh, is really interesting. One size does not fit all, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think it's important to make people feel safe, to make people feel engaged, to make people feel that it is of a place, and of a place could mean grading, it could mean planting, it could mean materials, but really uh, understanding what what that particular community is, is embraces, and and then allowing for flexibility because yeah. people will use spaces in in the most uh, un, you know, unexpected ways, and so awe and surprise, and uh, sort of are are also sort of valued. Yeah. One of the things at the Natural History Museum, for example, is that you know we talked a lot about signage and um, wayfinding and interpretive signage. These organically, these uh, signs with that were on blackboards started surging started sort of emerging, and they are brilliant. They're brilliant, yeah. They're brilliant. And it, it really, you know, speaks to that place, that, that museum, that community, those visitors, and it's so flexible uh, that it is just, I think, a, a wonderful, wonderful sort of solution to some of what you're bringing forward. But I think in the end, one of the words that I really value um, is empathy. You know, empathy and respect. So it's empathy towards your fellow citizens, empathy towards immigrants, empathy, empathy, empathy towards your, your elected officials who are having to make many decisions, and towards the administrators of all these institutions and empathy towards nature and respect to nature. Mia Lair, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Mia Lair is the founding principal of Los Angeles-based Mia Lair & Associates, whose garden design work, particularly in urban environments, embodies her belief in the power of landscape to enhance the livability of a city and to heal the environment. Her award-winning work includes the Nature Gardens at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County in the heart of downtown L.A. My conversation with Mia lasted for well over an hour. If you'd like to hear an extended version of this interview, including the descriptions of her early life and formative experiences in her own words, please look for the extended play version of today's program in the same place you find the audio archives every week, mynspr.org. 
Join us again next week as the conversation continues when we speak with Ernie Wasson, a gardener and educator who will share with us his passion and knowledge about salvias, a fabulous group of plants that can help bring nature into your garden, no matter how big or how small. The third International Salvia Summit is being held just outside of San Francisco this fall. Listen in to learn more. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schultz. Audio archives for today's program can be found at MyNSPR.org. More information, including many photos, are available at JewelGarden.com and at Cultivating Place on Instagram or Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.